This is Bug in Your Ear, Dispatches from the Surgical Infection Society. I'm Dr. Jonathan Kohler, a pediatric surgeon and surgical infection enthusiast. In each episode of this podcast, we meet members of this great society and hear about the groundbreaking work they're doing to improve care of our patients. In this episode, Dr. Laura Brown and I host five surgeon members of the Surgical Infection Society to talk about one of the most pressing issues in medicine today, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's ever clearer that in order to properly care for patients, to ask the right research questions, and to innovate the way medicine clearly needs to innovate, we need surgeons and researchers who reflect the communities and backgrounds that we serve. So it was a great pleasure to talk to Drs. Michaela West, Leo Benedict, Sabrina Sanchez, and Patricia Martinez-Quinones of the SIS DEI Committee. As always, the SIS is leading the way. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to introduce to you an amazing panel of experts on diversity, equity, and inclusion. We are um, here today with myself, Laura Brown, um, who is an assistant professor of surgery at uh, Metro Health in Cleveland, and Jonathan Kohler, my co-host. Yeah, I'm Jonathan Kohler. I'm an associate professor of surgery at the University of California, Davis. Um, I'd first like to introduce you to... um, one of our esteemed past presidents, Michaela West, uh, to talk with us a little bit about some of the historical um, efforts and diversity at SIS. My name is Michaela West. I was president of the SIS in 2004. Uh, I've been a member of the SIS since 1984. So I am clearly the token oldest person uh, on this podcast in terms of the that dealing with the then aspect of of the title. And I uh, right now I am uh, the trauma research chair at North Memorial Hospital, which is a level one hospital in uh, Minneapolis. I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Minnesota and an emeritus professor of surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. I first went to an SIS meeting in 1984. I think there was maybe one or two women there. I don't know that there were really any individuals of of color. That was not too different than the composition of the kind of universe of surgery at that time. So it was a lot of of old white men. Uh, It is an aside, but myself included. Look it up. Michaela, what what do you think has been the biggest challenge um, in the last 10 to 20 years in terms of um, advancing that goal of diversity in the in the society and at large in professional societies? Well, I, I think that a number of societies have kind of taken an, an approach of saying that, you know, whatever the, you know, arc of history is long and it bends toward justice. So if we just kind of wait it out and we're open to uh, new ideas and more diversity, it will just sort of happen. And I think that that is a mistaken belief. I don't don't think that it will uh, just happen. I think that you, you, we, uh, academic societies, have to make the the kind of future that they uh, envision. And uh, rather than just waiting for amazing, diverse, 
uh, highly qualified, interesting people to show up at the doorstep. I think that academic societies and universities and medical schools and specialties like surgery that have, have historically been underrepresented need to go and actively try to make the case for why this is important. Do you think there are any specific techniques that we can use to recruit members to institutions or professional societies? Well, you know, I've heard other people kind of talk about it's hard to be what you don't see. So seeing examples, having mentors, having sponsors and things like that can be very important for for someone to to kind of say as uh, as a prospective member would be looking at the society and perhaps thinking, I don't know that there's a place for me in that organization to find or, or have someone within that organization be reaching out and saying, no, absolutely, you would have a home here. I'm very happy here. Uh, so then there will be two or there'll be four of us or, or whatever. There'll be even more. And then we'll go out and find uh, some more of, of those individuals. I think that's an amazing um, viewpoint, and I so much appreciate the experience and expertise you bring to the group. I would like to talk a moment now about some of the challenges that we've seen in the last year, and I think that that's really brought the conversation to a different level. I think the impact of the last year's activities on society as a whole have made a lot of people sit down and say, am I doing the right thing? Am I an ally? Am I advocating for people who don't have these opportunities? And what can I personally do better? Um, And I think that's made a lot of societies reach out and ask that question as well. And one of the uh, efforts that our society made was to create a committee on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'd like to introduce um, Dr. Andrew Benedict to share with us his experience. My name is Andrew Benedict. I'm one of the faculty members at UMKC in Kansas City. And our initial focus within the society was to assess how the SIS can improve diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're going to do that by surveying committee members. And this could be a good source for new and innovative ideas for promoting diversity. We're also working on a committee manuscript that highlights the importance of diversity within surgical societies, not just our own, and ways that we can engage and educate committee leadership and also individual members. We also feel that promoting diversity is important, um, as Michaela mentioned before, to increase recruitment and also retention of diverse members and also diversity within our surgeon physician workforce. Furthermore, topics at societal meetings that also cover gender, race, and healthcare disparities can also lead to increasing awareness and unconscious bias. And then finally, as a committee, we're going to focus our efforts on developing and implementing a specific action plan and also a strategy for increasing diversity equity and inclusion. And some of those specific action plans include uh, maintaining or even promoting a program meeting diversity subcommittee to ensure diverse representation of speakers and program content during our our national meetings. Uh, We hope to have some more scholarships and awards for research focusing on diversity and surgical infections. In addition, creating a practical and accessible mentorship program for residents and junior faculty to increase the number of women and underrepresented minorities in leadership positions within surgical societies and also academic faculty positions. And that sounds like such an ambitious and um, important agenda for the committee. What do you 
think is the most important item in that list for new members or folks who might be interested in the Surgical Infection Society? I think uh, maintaining a good mentorship program, as we talked about before, um, having practical and accessible mentors can directly lead to promoting uh, academic faculty positions, promoting recruitment and retention in surgery and other societies. And, you know, having good mentorship can directly lead to that. So that would be one of our focuses um, moving forward. I'd like to talk a little bit more about some folks who are members of SIS, um, some of our esteemed panel members who also bring to us some outside experience working on diversity, equity, and inclusion in their organizations. And, And I hope that they can bring us some interesting perspectives on some of the approaches to this question that are happening around the country and some of the things that we might consider doing in our society or that others might consider. Dr. Sabrina Sanchez is our first speaker. Hi, I am Assistant Professor of Surgery at Boston Medical Center in Boston University, and I'm in the Division of Trauma, Acute Care Surgery, and Surgical Critical Care. And I would like to say that one of the, like, you know, Dr. Benedict alluded to, and like you alluded to, Dr. Brown, I did join SIS because it felt like a very close-knit, supportive organization. My division chief kind of reached out to me and said, hey, are you interested in joining this this organization? You know, I think you would really like it. Uh, And it was the first organization that, that, you know, anybody told me about when I, um, when I started as an attending uh, other than, you know, the, the ones that everybody goes to, you know, ACS and East and AAST. And then I started looking through it and I saw people from my residency, you know, attendings for my residency and other people that I just felt, you know, could be very supportive of my career. And, and it's honestly, after the first meeting that I attended, I was like, this is great. You know, people are just so inclusive and so supportive of of junior faculty. And I think it's, it's great and very important that we're trying to expand that to uh, ensure that the society is more diverse when it comes to people of color, more women, LGBTQ, you know, expanded in, in every way possible. One of the things that I do at my institution, one of the members of the Diversity and Inclusion Council for the hospital and the physician medical group, and I'm also the deputy associate chair for uh, faculty development uh, academic affairs and diversity within my department. Uh, and this is something that we started about a year ago, being very cognizant that it was important for us as a hospital and then specifically as well as a department to to focus on increasing diversity in our workforce. That it wasn't just something that was going to happen over time. I mean, we could, it it could happen over time. It would, but it would take, you know, 50, a hundred years to actually get accomplished as opposed to being on a much more necessary timeline, which is this needs to happen in the next five to 10 years, you know? Oh, absolutely. um, (laughs) Like we need to press on here. It needs to happen fast. It needed to happen, you know, 20 years ago. So let's catch up. So starting by going to the junior attendings and the people that are about to become attendings, and then as that gets established, continuing to go further down the pipeline and really making sure that you support 
a diverse group of residents in, in whatever residency program you're in, you know, that as a member of SIS will ensure that you will have people to invite to SIS that are diverse once they become close to being attendings or attendings, right? So it really, it really is about fostering um, the young ones, the youth. And that's something that we're also doing very purposefully at my institution, you know, reaching out to medical students, reaching out to residents. So you're that's an amazing perspective. And I think that that's really important for societies going forward is the, the words that I heard you mention that I thought were really important are intentional, that efforts to include underrepresented folks, um, anyone who's had less representation in the society really needs to be an intentional effort at multiple levels with buy-in from leadership. Uh, Dr. Patricia Quinones is, uh, you prefer Martinez Quinones or Quinones? Yeah, so, so it's Patricia Martinez Quinones. I'm Puerto Rican, so we keep two last names, our first, our uh, fathers and second, our mothers. Um, but I'm a general surgery resident at the Medical College of Georgia, Augusta University, currently clinically in my fourth year, taking a little bit of a non-traditional route, uh, meaning I took uh, three years of research in between my second and third year uh, clinicals and pursued a PhD in uh, physiology, specifically looking at uh, inflammatory response and trauma. And I'm currently in my application process for fellowship critical care. Um, so talking about the youth, I'm probably the youngest member of SIS here uh, in this call. And um, I want to echo a lot of what has been mentioned by Dr. West, Dr. Benedict, and Dr. Sanchez, that mentorship and that pipeline. I learned about SIS through one of my own faculty members, Dr. Elizabeth Fox, one of our younger faculty members in trauma critical care, who was brought in by her mentor, Dr. Heffernan from uh, Brown University. So we can see see that uh, connection throughout the various generations of the surgical infection society. What are my current roles or hats? Uh, well, at MCG, um, Augusta University, I'm currently one of the charter members for our um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and health disparities um, GME committee. Um, and my involvement in other societies, I'm currently the American College of Surgeons Resident Associate um, Society liaison to the Association of Women Surgeons. So echoing everything that uh, has been said previously, intentionality, I think it's the most important Meaning in order to improve and increase membership diversity in our surgical societies, we have to have intentional inclusion of those members. We're all aware of the graphic of the leaky pipeline, um, whether you're thinking about it about women in surgery, where you're thinking about it underrepresented minorities in surgery and in surgical infection research. But there's a lot of holes in that pipeline that we can band-aid or gorilla glue, whatever analogy you want to use. But with intentionality, we can essentially patch those holes. There's a lot of great work that multiple societies are doing. Dr. Benedict alluded to what the Surgical Infection Society has set and planned for the future. And I think it all starts with just taking a good look at ourselves and what are our own implicit and explicit biases? Um, how can we contribute to our own institution 
and therein contribute to the societies we're members. One good example we all know about is manals, meaning a panel at a conference that's fully complemented of men and data from whether you want to look at basic science research, translational, or even surgical research says that if you happen to have one woman on your committee, uh, program committee for your conference, you're automatically going to increase the diversity of gender in your speakers. Similarly is for NIH review committees. So overall, um, you have to have that intentionality because I think everybody is working to fix that leaky pipeline and find the areas where we're losing people. I'll give you my own example. As I'm Hispanic, Hispanics have a 20% attrition rate in surgical residency. That means one in five is not going to complete. So knowing why we're dropping out and trying to fix the problem of why we're dropping out in the first place will eventually lead to increasing that diversity and inclusion within all our societies. I think this is all so great. And I think hearing you all talk about it reminds me of why it was that I was excited to join the Surgical Infection Society. I remember I was working in John Alverdi's lab as a medical student, uh, taking a year off between my third and fourth years. And I just remember him talking about this society, the, the Surgical Infection Society, and how it was you know, the destination to talk to people who were really at the top of their field and thinking about these sort of off the wall, what seemed at the time like off the wall topics. It turns out we were talking about microbiomics, which is now firmly like on the wall. But, uh, you know, at the time it was, it was like this sort of I don't know if you wanted to say that. Of like, the oh my God, bacteria might actually be kind of smart and the way we interact with them might be very different than the sort of traditional mm-hmm. model that people have been thinking about for the past hundred years. And well, really I joined as a, as a resident and, and had something of a leadership role in, in the communications committee at, at, while I was a trainee, which was an, an extraordinary opportunity. And I, and I think we as an organization have a really unique opportunity in that setting, you know, with those people to be nimble in a way that large inertia driven societies, you know, and organizations in medicine maybe can't be. So it's, it's so cool to think about the way that we as a group of deliberative thinkers are deliberately thinking about this problem of diversity and, and equity and inclusion. But I, I think we should open it up to, to a, a broader conversation about that. How can we as a society, not just make our own society more diverse and inclusive, but pave the way for other societies. And, you know, we're all, we're all members of multiple societies. How do we take the lessons that we can pilot in the SIS and, and take that more broadly? So I can tell you guys that I have had my own expert, my own experience within the last few weeks as I was trying to develop a, a series of podcasts and webinars that are coming down the pike. I accidentally ended up with the mantle, Patricia. <laughs> it was really frustrating in spite of my best efforts. And I had to go back. Luckily, someone on the diversity committee tar- emailed me and said, hey, did you realize this? And so I think one of the things that we have being intentional means trying not to let it happen, but also running your ideas past other people to make sure that you're including them. I think the most um, important example of when this happened in, in the field of surgery this last year was when that paper was published uh, in the Journal of Vascular Surgery. And it was clear that there wasn't a member who represented that work group, that that um, population, 
who could have said, hey, wait a second, this isn't something I would want to say out loud, guys. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't publish this. And I think that's really important is that you have to go out and search for other folks to hold you accountable to. So that that's my own personal experience. Does anyone else, I, I get to walk with one foot in the privileged column and one foot outside the privileged column. And so sometimes it even I get held to account does anyone else have any other similar experiences or opportunities or suggestions? I think that's an excellent example because um, as with anything in the world, there's surgery, you see the pendulums almost swing from one end to the next. And we have to be mindful, as I mentioned earlier, we all carry our own implicit and sometimes explicit biases. And because of those implicit biases, we might not take everything into consideration. So in order to create a diversity in a programming committee and representation of speakers in your scientific programming, it's important to include other perspectives outside of our own. Um, you mentioned that paper, and it kind of permeates all different areas of surgery in surgical societies, not just uh, the programming, but to the papers that get published that eventually that will affect who gets grant funding for their research. So um, it's important, as Dr. Sanchez mentioned from the beginning, being intentional about every step of the way. Yeah, and I have a, I have a story to share too, and, and I appreciate everyone's comments. And, you know, we had such an issue. I, I did... Um, I did some extra training after my residency at Children's Hospital in Kansas City. And so we did a paper on uh, looking at pediatric perforated appendicitis and some of the disparities in care and using some of our standard fast track pathways in terms of mitigating those disparities. And I can tell you, it took me almost a year and a half to get that paper published where the results were pretty good in terms of mitigating some of our disparities in perforated appendicitis and their post-op length of stay. But uh, we presented at a number of different meetings. I think we had three different journal submissions. And the questions that the reviewers were asked were so far and away mind-blowing to me in terms of how their la the lack of the correct term would be awareness, I would say, in terms of why this is an important topic to study and why it's important to publish. And it got to the point where we actually had to email the editor-in-chief of the journal that we submitted to, to say, hey, these reviewers are, 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 are they're, just, they're just not getting it. And uh, finally got published, but just the, just the amount of work and effort it took to raise awareness for something like this was important. Um, and that leads to the more of the global discussion um, that we can have as a society with both surgery, surgery, surgical infections, academic promotion, and so forth, which, which is, you know, how do we promote um, looking at diversity and inclusion and equity within our own institutions and how we can mitigate disparities in care and how that relates to looking at society as a whole with all of our surgical societies as well. And so that's the biggest challenge that I face here is how do I get buy-in from people who may not look like me or talk like me? How do I get buy-in into why this is an important aspect of surgical care to study and why it's important to put it out in the literature and, and so forth? That can kind of lead to a greater discussion that's probably outside of a surgical infection society meeting. I, mean, I wonder if it is though, because look, I'm like a cis 
white guy, like I'm like, you know, for me, this is, this is a very much a voyage of discovery. Right. And, and, and I'm learning so much about how much I've taken for granted about, you know, everything from like, well, of course I can be a member of these societies and I'll fit right into, um, to like, of course the things that I'm going to write about are going to be of interest to every editorial board. Right. But when I hear a story like that about, you know, having to justify to a journal, why something is interesting, I I think, I, I feel like it's terrible that that individuals are having to make that justification, right? And that one role for these societies is to represent those perspectives on a larger scale, right? That a society will have more influence than an individual in changing the way that things happen. And, and we as a society, right, we have a journal, like we, and we're going to be talking to the, you know, the editor of the journal um, in a subsequent episode, but what could we as a society do to deliberately say like, okay, we, we recognize there's a problem in the way we select papers systematically across the profession. Like how can we as a society influence how we change that? Should, uh, should, I mean, may one, one point could be, could we have, one journal article per year focused on disparities in care or why only one (laughs) (laughs) there could be there could definitely be more than one or well yeah sorry at least well i'm sorry small but yeah one two you know disparities in care or we can have a a, an article focused on you know lack of minority and, and women recruitment in academic surgery and how that can relate to delays or disparities in surgical infections you know we can talk about you know how those improvements can can happen within our own society. That soliciting goes back to, again, the topic of intentionality. And one thing that I keep thinking as we're having this conversation is data drives change. Knowing what's the makeup of what's getting published in surgical infection, knowing what as a society we're choosing to promote during our scientific programming and knowing where those gaps and holes that we are implicitly just not realizing that we're not covering or promoting uh, would then lead to driving change because you become intentional and say, we will have these many publications a year on X, Y, and Z topic. Then you allow not just that topic, but the writers, the authors, um, whoever's the student, the resident, the faculty member on those publications, it then leads to kind of patching up that pipeline to eventually leading to change the same way that, you know, kind of like the NIH or R38 uh, pipeline program for our funding mechanism or, you know, departments like the Michigan who have been very vocal and very open about what their makeup is and what they're doing to promote diversity and um, the promise to increase their own makeup and how then that can then be translated and others, uh, departments, institutions, organizations can adopt it just because they're giving all the data out. So I think that's where we can serve as a almost role model by being open, intentional, and making a promise for the future. One of the ways that that could be accomplished very pragmatically is that the program committee or perhaps the, the president-elect, as they're coming in, could be saying that I, w- I would like to have a session that's maybe going to a- address some of these disparities. And so in the whole program, which historically has been very competitive to get on the plenary session, you could end up saying, 
we've got six slots to fill that are going to be addressing this, and we're going to be grading them separately. So it might be that historically we end up putting about 40 papers on the on the program. And it might be that just in terms of the people who are grading those, that those papers that are addressing disparities might come in at 44 and 52 and et cetera. They may have valuable things, but they're not conforming to those pre-expectations. The NIH handles this kind of thing when they identify an important problem by putting out an, a request for uh, proposals and say, we've got a block of money that we want to, you know, look at gastrointestinal infections in recent immigrants to the United States. That is what we want to study. And there's millions of dollars or a million dollars to study that. Who would like to write up an application? And, and all of a sudden, people get very creative about it and it's recognized. And then when they hear it and when it ultimately gets published, they say, wow, I wonder why nobody had looked at that before. But, you know, it's really easy to do what we're all used to uh, doing. And if, if you're waiting for your kid to ride their bicycle without the training wheels on, it might take a lot longer than just saying, you know, I think you're ready. We're going to take the training wheels off. You go. Let's see how it works. And they do amazing. And a lot of these things, we could be, we'd be surprised how, how interesting it is and, and what talented people are out there and what new insights and perspectives we can obtain. And it actually increases the pie for everyone to be going there instead of doing, you know, yet another paper about, you know, this, this same thing or, you know, another arm of a protein and a different substituent on some uh, amino acid. And uh, we can get really lost in the weeds. I think one of the challenges every society or institution has is the idea, especially professional associations, have the idea that we need a certain level of merit for work to be presented. And the idea of a meritocracy uh, versus correcting for some of that is very challenging to folks. My question for the rest of the panel is, do you think there are other ways besides what we just talked about in terms of including new science at a meeting or new science in the journal, other ways to encourage folks to obtain that merit or to, for it to all of a sudden become meritorious? If it gets picked up by, you know, some news media, if it ends up you know, bubbling up to some, you know, major journal that has a press release or something that that goes along with it or, or whatever. I mean, this is certainly one one way that it the perception of merit can change over time to say that, you know, wow, this generated so much interest. It's been retweeted a, a gazillion times. That sounds a little bit almost mercenary, but you know, to some extent where the interest is, is what's important. It may not be what's important to me or what historically have been important to me, but it might actually be what's important to, to society that, you know, if, if indeed there, there is an interest in something, it may not be as elegant, it may not be NIH fundable, but it may actually be extraordinarily uh, important. Yeah, I think that's a such a great point. And I think I sort of have this sense of like, just as 
the Surgical Infection Society saw the promise of microbiomics coming 10 years before it became a common term. You know, hopefully we can also be the group that that sees the value of diversity and the and the value of inclusivity, not just in the membership of the Surgical Infection Society, but in the management of surgical infections. This is such a great way to start that conversation. I know the podcast as we go forward in future episodes, and hopefully we can have you back in various contexts throughout, we'll be looking at some of those issues as well. So thank you. Thanks for joining this conversation with the Surgical Infection Society. This episode of Bug in Your Ear was produced by me, Jonathan Kohler, and by Dr. Laura Brown. Production assistance from Heather Evans, Lynn Heido, and Diane Catalano. This episode was mixed and edited by Orlando Magana. If you like what you heard, please rate and review this podcast so others can find it. And consider joining the Surgical Infection Society, truly one of the great medical societies out there. We'll be back soon with more stories of the SIS.